Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. This episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Dial Hewlett of Westchester County Health Department and Dr. Neera Pollock of Boston Children's Hospital about COVID-19 testing, including the use of rapid and at-home tests. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Pollock, let's begin with you. What are the challenges and variables that need to be considered when thinking about testing in different settings? Why don't we start by talking about what types of tests exist for SARS-CoV-2 infection or for diagnosis of COVID-19. So there are two main types of tests. First, molecular tests, the most well-known type of which is PCR testing. So that type of testing has the highest sensitivity for ruling out COVID-19, but most of the samples have to go to central laboratories, which of course impacts the turnaround time for getting results back. Then there are antigen tests which are lower sensitivity, but they have the benefit of rapid results return and the possible benefit of lower cost for tests. So those are the two main types of tests. And now let's think about what reasons might require testing. So you may need testing because you're symptomatic. That's usually the most urgent reason for testing. You need a result to protect other people or perhaps to return to work or to school. You may need testing because you're a contact of a confirmed case because you need hospital admission or discharge, because you need to travel or as a requirement for work or another activity if you're a school student or for risk management, if you're gonna be spending time with an individual who has higher risk for severe COVID-19. So each of these testing scenarios has its own challenges and its own variables. And each type of test available has pros and cons for each of those testing scenarios. So I would say the general challenges and variables for all COVID testing still include access, turnaround time, cost, and supplies. And these are issues that are facing individual patients in the community and also labs. So access and turnaround time, for example, those are still a challenge, particularly when you're sick and you need those results quickly. We're seeing still long lines at urgent care, difficulty in getting an appointment for on-demand testing. So for example, at at Walgreens or CVS, you have to plan ahead and ideally you need internet access to make an appointment. There aren't as many state-sponsored sites, perhaps as earlier in the pandemic. If you go to your primary care provider, they may send a sample to a central lab where turnaround time can still be an issue. And now we have mail-in molecular tests, which is wonderful, but that turnaround time is also slow and you still need the internet to order one. In terms of cost, um, we know that if you go to your primary care provider, you may have to pay a copay to get an evaluation or perhaps for testing. We know that there are large-scale testing sites that have faster turnaround time, but those are often higher cost. And we also know that home tests still have costs that are basically too high for most people to use with any real frequency. And then finally, supplies. Limited testing supplies are still plaguing clinics and hospitals. And then we all know about limited home test supplies. Often you go to the pharmacy and can't find home tests to buy. And finally, there are some additional issues that it's helpful for people to know about. We really need people to run testing that's not done at home, and clinical labs are tremendously understaffed, and it's been a long-standing issue. And finally, we know that not all tests are acceptable for all scenarios, right? So we know that many scenarios don't allow home tests to be used, perhaps testing for work or school or travel, because the home tests don't provide a formal results report, or there may be concern that they're not sensitive enough for detection of asymptomatic infection. 
So the positions on use of home tests, which are also called potentially unproctored home tests, are really evolving right now. It's an, it's an active area of evolution. Dr. Pollack, let's talk about one of these specific instances that is on the minds of so many people. Looking at testing in schools specifically, what should the testing priorities be? From my perspective, the number one priority is to exclude symptomatic children and staff from school until COVID-19 has been ruled out by diagnostic testing. And that's important right now because the community case rates are so high. And there are a lot of challenges to execute that priority. There are questions about which symptoms should require testing. Should we focus on only symptoms in combination, so children or staff with multiple symptoms, or could perhaps isolated symptoms, single symptoms also be an issue? And different schools and even hospitals have different rules for that. We have questions about inclusion of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and staff in that kind of testing. Should they be treated differently or should they be treated in the same way in terms of symptomatic exclusion? There are questions about how to manage kids and staff who wake up with mild symptoms or if they develop those symptoms in school. And overall, I think the challenge is that nobody wants to be too restrictive about what testing is required. But we also don't want to be too lenient. So we're trying to balance being cautious and not being overly cautious. And we also know that these approaches may change with new variants, but it takes time to gather data and policy decisions need to be made now. There are still access issues for that clinical testing. So if you wake up with symptoms and you need a test, you need to go find that test. And access is really different in different parts of the country, different parts of any state, et cetera. If you need a proctored antigen test or a molecular test, it can take time to get that. And then you have the additional turnaround time for PCR-based testing, as I mentioned earlier. And this can translate into missing substantial amounts of school. So the question comes up as to whether schools should be accepting home test results. But as we can discuss further, there are issues with that because those tests need to be read visually, which involves some subjectivity and there isn't an oversight and reporting of results in many cases really is an honor system. So what this all means is that kids and families who have less access to expedited testing will end up missing more school. And that is obviously an equity issue. In our state and actually in our county, one of the things that we have done is that we have prioritized uh, recommendations for children who have been exposed, but who may be vaccinated already. And so we have made the recommendation that if those children are asymptomatic and they have been fully vaccinated, they can continue with their normal school activities. However, we have recommended that between days five and seven, they have a test done. This of course doesn't get around what Dr. Pollack is saying in terms of the access, but it does at least give the families a bit of time to plan. Obviously, if the children have been exposed and they are unvaccinated, then unfortunately under our guidance in our county, those children have to be placed on quarantine and the quarantine lasts for 10 days and they are not allowed to test out of that, unfortunately, at, in our particular state. The other thing which I think we have to think about as we get into different periods of the year, especially holiday times when people are going to be traveling, is that children who are traveling with their families will be subjected to testing guidance when they return. And recently, there have been some updates to that as well. Thank you. So agreed. And that's the perfect segue to the second priority, which is testing of close contacts. 
which is also diagnostic testing. And I think you've raised some really important issues about access and about what barriers arise in that testing scenario. In school, transmission rates have been shown to be reasonably low when mitigation measures are in place. So when we have masking, ventilation, hand washing, distancing to the degree feasible, and now critically vaccination, we know that in-school transmission rates to date have been relatively low. People are still collecting data for the most recent experience in the fall. But we also know that bringing everyone back in person has reduced the distance in many schools. And so that's an additional variable. So a number of districts, states, and so on have implemented some pretty interesting programs to deal with testing of contacts. And one of them being used across the country is called Test and Stay or Test to Stay. There is a uh, statewide program in Massachusetts and in many other states. And this is being implemented and evaluated at the same time. And the goal is certainly, as you said, to try to keep contacts learning in school rather than having to be at home quarantining. The program itself is a bit complicated. It requires daily testing of in-school close contacts with definitions of those close contacts. The testing is done with rapid antigen tests and done for seven days from the day of exposure. Masks are still in the Massachusetts program expected of those who are staying in school. And if that rapid antigen test is negative, then the children are allowed to stay in the school. But as you said, there, is, there are differences for who gets to be included in this program and asymptomatic kids who are vaccinated are not included in the program. And so this is an, an, another question. Could they be included? It would be on, in some ways great to expand inclusion and be able to test more people, but that requires more tests and more staff. So it's a balance of including the the highest priority unvaccinated kids, but also thinking about testing of the vaccinated children as well. So all of this programmatic contact testing is being heavily implemented in many, many places in the country. Um, Data is being rapidly collected about how well they are working, but in general, they seem to be working well and the programs seem to be going well overall. And then finally, I would say that the third priority, at least for me, is asymptomatic screening of those who have no known exposure. So this is typically being approached with pooled testing, so pooled molecular testing. To date, antigen rapid test supplies haven't really been sufficient to support that kind of large scale weekly or more than weekly asymptomatic screening. But there are many challenges to that too. Participation rates, how generalizable is the data? You can't mandate participation in such a program in most places. It's a ton of work and whether or not vaccinated people should be included is still a big question mark. And obviously that is rapidly changing with the rollout of the pediatric five to 11 vaccine. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim Hansen. Advance the career of your colleagues by encouraging them to apply to become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org forward slash FIDSA. Dr. Pollock, you've talked a bit about at-home testing, including variable access across the country to at-home tests. Can you tell us a bit more about what types of home tests are currently available and what we know about their reliability? Most of the available home tests right now are antigen rapid diagnostic tests. As of today, on the FDA website, there are 14 home antigen rapid diagnostic tests and also four home molecular rapid tests that have emergency use authorization from the FDA. 
The antigen rapid tests are much more available and lower cost overall than the home molecular tests, although home molecular tests are, are a significant advance in the field. Uh, those, those tests have some variability in their performance, but it, it makes the most sense for us to focus on antigen rapid tests since those are the most available and getting sort of the most increase in, in scale over the next few months. The performance issues for the antigen rapid tests or RDTs, rapid diagnostic tests, we know that they have lower analytical sensitivity than PCR or other molecular testing, but they do, as I mentioned, have rapid turnaround time and they have lower cost. And there is a process included in, in the authorizations for many of these to do serial testing to mitigate that lower sensitivity in asymptomatic individuals. But the right interval for that serial testing isn't completely clear and it's different for different tests on the market. And I think one of the biggest questions that people have about these tests is whether or not a negative antigen rapid test can rule out infection in a symptomatic individual, because that's when most people are using these. And given that question, whether confirmation by a high sensitivity molecular test is needed. So we know that these tests have high sensitivity in symptomatic individuals. We also know that that sensitivity is not 100%. And there are still some questions about the relative sensitivity in symptomatic children, although they also appear to perform very well in symptomatic children, but it isn't 100%. They're not as sensitive as molecular tests. So the question comes up repeatedly about whether the antigen rapid tests can be used as a test of infectiousness. And there is a lot of debate on that issue. We know that it is possible to have a negative antigen test and a positive PCR test and potentially still be infectious because we know that that person could have a viral load that is on its way up. On the other hand, if these tests are more available and can be used rapidly, then they have a real benefit. And we also know that a negative antigen test is still useful, assuming that the test was done properly, which without oversight is a question mark. The tests have very high specificity overall. So confirmation of a positive test with rates the way they are in the community right now is probably unnecessary, but there's disagreement about this too particularly for asymptomatic individuals. But in general, I think everyone agrees that a positive home test is a very, very helpful thing. And as I've alluded to a few times, most of these home tests do not have oversight for either collection of that sample or reading of the result. And both of those variables have been demonstrated in research studies to impact test sensitivity and specificity, particularly in the home environment. So it is not trivial to ask about the actual performance of these tests in the home environment. Despite that, they do perform remarkably well in the home environment, but those variables are real, sample collection and reading. So there is a solution out there which has pros and cons and limitations. So there's a proctored testing solution called EMED as one example, where if you have internet and computer and smartphone access, you can do a proctored test where someone is collecting your identification information, watching you collect the sample, watching you read the result, and providing a formal results report. Very helpful and addresses a lot of issues. But the question remains about the scale of that kind of resource. And if everybody needed to do that before work or school, are there enough tests? Are there enough staff? And so on. And so I really have questions about what more we could do to train the home user to address some of these issues. Could we not train home users on first use to address some of these potential pitfalls? Could they be trained by video or even in person on the first use 
Could they be taught about the pitfalls and the sources of error and variability? Could we reinforce messaging about results interpretation and how to report results? I actually think there's a lot more we could do to improve the reliability of home testing, even in the absence of, of EMED and these other very interesting solutions that are coming along. Finally, I would say just about scalability and access to these home tests. I know that's a major question, and there's a lot of effort going into this on the FDA side in particular, trying to streamline approvals of tests that have capacity for large-scale manufacturing. We all know that if you go to the pharmacy, you may not find one of these tests for use, so hard to find, and certainly they're not available to the community in a scale that works for programmatic use, for example, for a school district. And finally, cost, right? So there are major efforts underway from the Biden administration to address access and cost, including insurance reimbursement and, and availability of these tests in community sites for those without insurance. But it's still unclear, at least to me, exactly what the plan is. And, and I, I would just point out that insurance reimbursement is not trivial to get. And hopefully, I'm certain that those working on this have this in mind, and we'll be thinking about this as they, as they execute this scale up. You've both referred to the value and importance of vaccination. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Dr. Hewlett, in your role in the Westchester County Public Health Department in New York, can you talk about the way vaccine requirements are being implemented? Just as background, we know that every part of the country is a little different each state has uh, their own set of guidance. New York is uh, rather unique in that we have New York City, which actually has a, a governance of its own, if you will, and the mayor actually can have mandates that apply to New York City residents. And then, of course, we have the rest of the state and Westchester County, although we're adjacent to New York City, we are actually considered part of the rest of the state, if you will. And we come under the guidance of uh, the New York State Department of Health. And we, of course, have to follow then the guidance that they have laid out for us. We are very happy that we have a new commissioner of health who has just come on board, Dr. Mary Bassett. And I'm sure she's going to be putting out a lot of guidance for us in terms of the vaccines. But in terms of the mandates, the way that they have occurred is that at the, I believe it was probably during the summer and going into the fall, uh, there were recommendations that individuals should be vaccinated. And those recommendations then were followed by the mandates. Once the mandates went into place, all of the individuals who might be part of whatever organization it is, were given the opportunity to determine if they were eligible for medical exemptions, or if they were eligible for certain types of religious exemptions. And if it was felt that they were not eligible for those exemptions, then they were required to have the vaccines uh, by a certain date. If they failed to do that, then they were, in many cases, not allowed to work. Or if they were allowed to work, one of the options that some were offered was that they would be tested on a weekly basis. And these individuals would have to bear the responsibility of getting the testing done on their own. And, and uh, as Dr. Pollack has mentioned, that's not exactly an easy task if you have to do the testing on your own. But that is actually how the mandates have rolled out. Now, in New York City, I must say that although initially there was a lot of opposition in certain groups, they are up to about 90% of the adults who have had at least one dose of the uh, vaccine. 
here in our county, if we look at some of our data, I think we're up to about 80 in the 80% range for our adults here in our county. And one of the things which is being discussed, although it has not yet been enacted, is how are we going to work this out for our schools? One of the things that we're very happy about in our county is that since mid-November, 30% of our children between the ages of 5 and 11 years have been vaccinated, and that's without mandates. About 86% of our children between the ages of 12 and 17 have been vaccinated, and that's, of course, without mandates. Now, it has not been all a, a bed of roses. We have uh, done the uh, vaccine events in various school districts around our county, and in some of the districts, we have been welcomed. And in some of the districts, we have had uh, petitions from parents who have said, we really don't want you here. Uh, we've seen petitions and we've seen parents who have been very upset that we are actually there. It's not as well accepted all over. As far as New York State is concerned, the experiences in downstate New York, in the metropolitan New York area and the surrounding suburban areas has been much different in that there are significantly higher vaccination rates in this area than when we go into the upstate areas in western New York and in the uh, northern counties. So we have a lot of work to do, but that's where things are as far as some of the vaccine mandates. Well, it's great to hear that you've had such high vaccination rates so far, and hopefully those will continue to increase. Can you tell us any more about any of the challenges that you've encountered in terms of implementing vaccination policies and requirements? Well, fortunately for us in the county, we have been following the guidance of the state. And we have not ourselves actually experienced a lot of, uh, a lot of negative pushback. We do, of course, worry sometimes when we go to some of the schools where we have set up events and we're worried about sometimes uh, spacing opposition. But by and large, we have not really faced the types of opposition that has been seen in other parts of the, uh, of the country. One of the things that we have tried to do in our county is to provide as much information as possible. And so we realize that there are certain individuals who are hesitant about the vaccine, both they as adults were hesitant, as well as they pass the same on to their children. And so what we have done recently with the rollout of vaccine to the five to 11 year old group is that we have had town hall meetings with the various school districts and we've held these virtually. And we have allowed the, the superintendents of the schools to get questions from the various parents. And then we have uh, had questions that we've taken in the chat box. And we try to take as much time as we can to address all of the questions because many people are hesitant because they don't have enough information and they just would like to have more information. And so we're hoping that that, that actually has an effect. The other thing that we've tried to do to overcome some of the access issues is that we have offered the clinics, pop-up clinics at the various schools. We have also offered the vaccine at our health department four to five days per week and on some Saturdays. And this has made it easier for people to come in. And we've had the booster clinics open for people without appointments. And so we've done everything that we can do as a health department. And we've also taken part in redistributing vaccine to various practitioners around the county who don't necessarily have the storage capabilities uh, that we have with the freezers and whatnot. And so it's made it a lot easier then for the various uh, practitioners to offer the vaccines in their practices because they don't then have to worry about storing it. And we also have worked with the ambulance corps 
around the county. And they have actually gone around and they've administered the vaccine to some of the homebound citizens who can't really leave their houses. Dr. Hewlett, you mentioned that some individuals have been allowed to test out of COVID vaccine requirements, so submitting to routine testing in lieu of getting vaccinated. Can you talk a bit about some of the shortcomings or limitations to that approach? The main thing that we worry about with uh, testing out is that the test, whether it's a PCR or whichever test we do, is essentially a snapshot. It tells us that that person has a negative test on that particular day. The next day, they may have a positive test. If the next day they develop symptoms, then we know that during the day when they were being tested, as well as the day before, they were actually shedding the virus and actually could pass the virus on to others. We know that a lot of the adults and children are asymptomatic. And so even though they may have a negative test today, then it's assumed that for the rest of the week, they can go to school and they may have a positive test the following day. And so there's a risk that they can pass on infection uh, in that setting as well. So I think that that's the main shortcoming of the testing out. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I think it also, you know, it, it highlights the limitations of testing. It highlights the importance of vaccination. And it also highlights the importance of other mitigation measures like masking. We know that masking has been shown to reduce in school transmission rates. We know that masking is helpful indoors. And so I personally am am very much in favor of indoor masking requirements, particularly within schools, but in general, while community case rates remain high. One other thing, and Dr. Pollack, I'd like to hear your comments on this, because this is one of the most common questions that we are getting when we're dealing with the schools. And that is we have an adult or a child who uh, have a positive test. It's on a home test. And then they decide that they're going to get a PCR test and the PCR test uh, is negative. And so they then say, well, this was probably a false positive. Now, in the present setting where our case rates are rising and we have gone from at the the beginning of November, uh, 100 cases per day to 300 cases per day, we have said we are going to follow the results of that positive test. And so... I'd like to hear what you have to say about that, if you think that's a wise approach or... The results of the positive antigen test. Yes. Yeah, I I think that's quite reasonable. These tests have been demonstrated to have remarkably high specificity, actually. I think when when the pandemic first started and everyone was thinking about antigen tests in general and applying experience from rapid flu antigen tests, for example, I think there was a lot of skepticism about the specificity of these tests from the beginning. But I think that there have been many, many studies now that have demonstrated that the antigen tests have very high analytical specificity. Now, when you start using them at the scales that we're talking about, we know that even a very small non-specificity rate, so even if you have a test that's 99% specific or 99.5% specific, when you start using that at, at these giant scales, you are going to get large numbers of false positive tests. There's no way around. That can also happen with molecular tests. But I think that with high prevalence, as we're seeing in most of the country right now, just as you say, confirmation of a positive rapid test drops in its priority, right? Because I think that it's most likely to be real, to be a true positive. The second thing I would say is that we know that 
sampling in that moment that you're you are collecting a sample for the test that you're getting is extremely important. So it's always possible that a good sample was collected for that rapid antigen test, and then a, a poor quality or lower quality sample was collected for the PCR test. That's another limitation, and it just makes everything more complicated, but it's real. We have to be really very rigorous in our sample collection optimization, and we have to understand that sample collection itself can be a reason for test variability. I will close with a question for both of you. With the introduction of the Omicron variant, can you share your thoughts on the importance of increasing vaccination rates both in the U.S. and globally? Well, we're very concerned about this, as we've said, and I think a lot of people have said we're not panicking, but we are concerned. Uh, We understand that this Omicron variant has many mutations involving the spike protein, and we don't know as much about it as we would like, but we do believe that it is probably more transmissible than some of the uh, earlier uh, variants. We don't have a lot of information yet about the virulence of this in terms of whether it will cause disease that's more severe, but in terms of transmissibility, we're certainly very worried about this. And we know, and this goes back to the same theme, if the virus does not have a host, then it cannot really mutate because it's not going to have a place to grow. And I think that this emphasizes the importance of vaccinations. And one of the encouraging things that we've seen here in our county over the last week is that we have seen a dramatic increase in the demand for vaccines for the boosters, as well as individuals coming into our clinics for their first and second doses, and also parents bringing their children in for the vaccines. And so that might actually be the silver lining, if you will, of this uh, Omicron cloud. I strongly agree with you about the importance of vaccination in this moment. Obviously, scientists around the world, and, and particularly in South Africa, but all over the world are racing to try to understand the protection that vaccines are offering against infection with this Omicron variant and also in a protection against severe illness and death, which is really the main, the main utility of vaccines. And from what I understand from listening, I think that, that most scientists are expecting the vaccines to offer at least some protection against severe illness and death, if not a lot of protection. So it's really the time to increase vaccination rates, both in the United States and globally. We can't under understate the importance of global vaccination in this moment. It's also a good reminder that it is not time to put our masks away. And since we, we as Dr. Hewlett said, this is a moment where we so far think that the, the virus may be more transmissible than that is cause or justification for, for keeping our mask use, not for reducing it. On the testing front, data is rapidly being collected by many, many groups on the performance of all available tests for detection of the Omicron variant. So that work is including many people, including the manufacturers themselves, including the FDA, NIH, uh, Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, FIND. There are many, many groups working on this very important issue. And in particular, since we've been talking about antigen tests a lot today, there is an active investigation of the impact of variants on the performance of current home tests with emergency use authorization. And that's being done by the collaborative group from Emory and Georgia Tech and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, working on the RADx program with the Atlanta Center for Microsystems Engineered Point of Care Technologies and the NIH Variant Task Force. It's a very rapidly evolving program to try to make sure that these tests work. 
because while most of the mutations are concentrated in the spike protein, which is not what's being detected by these home tests, most of them are focused on the nucleoprotein. And there are some mutations in that as well. And while everyone is very optimistic, we still have to prove that the tests still work as we think they should. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Hewlett and Pollock for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.